Today on Podcast by the Bay, an exclusive interview with criminal defense attorney Jeff Hayden. It's a reminder to me that when I present a case in front of a judge or a jury, those individuals don't walk into that courtroom knowing all about my case as I do. So I need to break it down and take them through the steps that got us to that point and not just the story, that piece of the story that's there in front of them who takes us into the mind of a criminal defense attorney and talks about issues such as bail reform. Uh, There's many factors that they should be looking at as an individualized basis that they're not looking at now. But ultimately, I think once that's all done, I don't think that uh, they should be denied bail in most cases. All on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at HighwaySoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.Liberty-RealtyInvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. And now, another Podcast by the Bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. This is Andre. And this is Patrick. And welcome to another episode of Podcast by the Bay. We thank you for being with us today. And we thank you for spending your time and listening and downloading this show. And for all of your feedback, too. Uh, We've gotten a lot of great feedback from our Mayor on the Peninsula series. Just really good feedback and hearing from you. We, we, We definitely appreciate it. And so today's episode, we're, we have actually have a special interview with a Jeff Hayden. And Patrick, maybe you can explain a little bit about Jeff and, and what he represents. Great, great. Jeff, uh, Jeff Hayden is a practicing criminal lawyer. Um, he's, uh, he, he's located in close to the courthouse uh, downtown. I had an opportunity to interview him. I've known him for years. Um, He's had excellent skills in ethics. Um, he's also, as you know, a member of the San Mateo County Bar Association, and I think he's going to be an incoming president pretty soon. He graduated from the University of California in a Bachelor of Art. Uh, he got his uh, jurisprudence in 1989. Uh, he's been um, practicing criminal law for about 28 years. Um, his specialty is adults. Uh, juveniles. Um, he practices not only in the San Mateo County Court, but also in the Santa Clara County Court, also in the San Francisco. He's also uh, uh, works uh, specializing in, like I said, uh, criminal law. Uh, and he's a member of the Bar Association, the member of the Criminal Justice Section. He's a certified public defenders association. Um, he is, like I said, located in Redwood City. He will also do a free consultation to most people. He's probably one of the fairest uh, criminal attorneys that I have ever met. Uh, he also spends sometimes as a judge pro tem, and that's a volunteer thing that a lot of attorneys do. Um, he also um, it keeps current on all the laws. Um, we, in fact, we, we had a nice discussion on the smash and grab laws, and he's going to explain that to you in his, in my question interview. He's going to explain to you uh, his position on the uh, bail reduction. Um, he also is located in a, in a law firm that the, some some of them uh, some of those people in his building also defended Brock Turner. Brock Turner was the uh, Stanford swim student that was eventually convicted. Um, uh, and and serve some time, a short period of time. We also know that's a kind of a controversial thing. He had nice things to say about Michelle Dauber, uh, the professor that is recalling him. 
but he also had a really spirited discussion um, in what we were talking about, how do we correct behavior and how do we correct injustice? So I think with that, without further ado, I think we should get into Jeff's uh, presentation and my questioning. He is definitely a public servant. He also ran for judge a while back. Um, I'm hoping he will run again to become a uh, judge because he definitely presents himself well, understands the law, and is compassionate about the people he serves. So without further ado, I'd like you to you know, to go ahead and listen to uh, Jeff Hayden, a criminal defense attorney, talking about what's happening currently in the peninsula and talking about the laws on the books. Right on, Patrick. Right on. I mean, this this is actually very in line with a lot of our listeners and kind of what we're thinking about. I mean, there's a lot of issues that we're talking about, right? I mean, laws, right? Policy. And here we have somebody that really studies them and actually talks about them and can really speak on speak on the laws. And I think that's a really fascinating thing. I don't know about any of the listeners out there, but I've actually been on two juries. And let me tell you, every single time when I get called for jury duty, I love it. I really love it. I'm like, I hope they pick me. I'm that one guy, right? Everybody else wants to get out of it. I want to be on the jury, and I'm going to tell you why. It is the most fascinating uh, example of human behavior, and you see the psychology behind it. And it's so fascinating when you see how people act when they're on the stand, when they're and, and the way and all the dynamics between the attorneys and the, and the judge and everything. So I think that you know, uh, hearing actually from somebody of Jeff's status, of somebody who's been around and, and understands the law and who really can speak upon a lot of these issues. You might have heard Jeff on some of the other radio shows and some of the other things actually, uh, you know, here in the Bay Area because he does speak out. Um, so definitely I think this is really cool that we've got, actually got a chance to have an exclusive interview. And I understand he's actually run for different offices too, like judge and stuff before. Yeah, he ran for judge. And, you know, I might mention just to kind of give you some highlight, he's a criminal defense attorney, which includes drug crimes, juvenile offenses, domestic violence, sex crimes, attempted murder, DUIs and other traffic crimes, felony crimes. So he, he, he and he's practices in Hillsborough, San Mateo, Belmont, Half Moon Bay, Atherton. Uh, East Palo Alto, Los Altos, Pescadero. So he's all over the peninsula. And I've never met a much more spirited person um, than Jeff in being in the practice of law. So um, I, I'm excited to have him come speak to us. And I'm looking forward to hoping that you guys have some responses out there. All right. Well, for all the listeners out there, we do appreciate your feedback. So please send us an email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcastbythebay. It's okay to be our friend. It's okay to like us. We're not going to bite. So there you go. So with that, I think we're going to go ahead and get to the Jeff Hayden interview. And with that, this is Andre. And this is Patrick. And we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Well, good afternoon. This is Patrick with Podcast by the Bay, and we have an extraordinary opportunity to interview Jeffrey B. Hayden. Jeffrey B. Hayden is an attorney. Um, Jeffrey, uh, how long have you been practicing law? Doing a little bit of math. Uh, 28 years. 28 years. Well, congratulations. Where did you go to law school? USC. You, okay. Did, now, when you were in law school, did you have a specialty you thought you might practice in law? No, I really didn't in law school. I always kind of gravitated towards a couple of different areas. Um, real estate, law, transactions interested me until I came to realize this isn't a dispute between homeowners. Those don't normally have the funding for uh, a representation. Usually that's much bigger picture, things that are of much less interest. I uh, had the benefit of being able to clerk, to extern with one district court judge while in law school, and clerk for another after graduation and really see what people spent their days doing as lawyers, where they were fighting their day-to-day -day battles, and that's when I focused on criminal law. So how long have you been practicing criminal law? <clears throat> Since 1993. And <clears throat> for our audience out there um, that are not very familiar with the uh, criminal practice, could you tell us uh, uh, what type of cases do you normally handle? I'm about half and half between court-appointed cases and those cases that people come to me privately to retain me. Uh, the practices tend to be a little different. The private cases may be white-collar. It may involve uh, paperwork, uh, somebody who 
is accused of not uh, not paying all their taxes or not uh, paying the premiums for their uh, workers' comp or whatever it may be on the one hand. And on the other hand, it may be more garden variety stuff. Um, on the court-appointed side, I do juvenile delinquency defense. Uh, the smallest case I've ever had is a child that was charged with stealing a sandwich in the supermarket and yet found himself in custody, even though he had no record. Uh, right up through and including homicide cases. In adult, I really have several different panels that I participate in. I do misdemeanors, I do uh, felonies and serious felonies, um, everything from simple garden variety thefts up to and including homicide. Wow, Jeff, Jeffrey, one of the uh, key things that we were talking about in the state of California past was uh, to work on bail. Can you talk about the bail situation or the inequity of the bail? There was just a case decided by the state Supreme Court on Thursday, which is going to change the law as we know it on bail. Historically, <clears throat> bail was to guarantee your court appearances. It eventually migrated somewhat after the passage of Proposition 8, they began focusing more and more on public safety. Different counties set their own bail schedules, and they tend to do it in accordance with the nature of the charge, which they are to presume to be true for purposes of bail. That's the model we've been working under. And as things beget, become more inflated, uh, you see crimes committed by someone who's out on bail or the like, the counties have really been working at a fever pitch to adjust the bail schedule annually and make it more and more expensive to post bail. What ended up happening is the system's beginning to implode. People accused of crimes are usually not from the upper echelons of society. And you have poor people that are unable to post bail. They're usually working class people that are accused for the most part. And while they're presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, the presumption is that they're guilty for purposes of bail. So people find themselves sitting in jail for months at a time, maybe longer, unable to really do much until their case eventually goes to trial. Their jobs are lost, their families are impoverished, uh, there's really no, nothing that they can do to protect themselves. That is changing very rapidly. Contrary to what was required um, under the three strikes law, you had to take a serious felony and you couldn't deviate from the bail schedule unless you have good reason to. Uh, unless you can set forth reasons in the in the record, uh, that really ties the judge's hands. We had a decision of the first district court of appeal on Thursday, which said, "No, go back and reconsider this bail, and henceforth, you need to look at the individualized factors of the person, what kind of a risk they pose, um, not just what the offense is." And that I think is the first in a series of changes. That case may or may not survive appeal. Now, is that on the uh, uh, state superior court level, or is this a federal district uh, court? It's an appeal from the superior court of San Francisco to the first district court of appeal. And the law is that if an appellate court makes a decision, it's binding statewide, even though it's an appellate court from a particular district. The next level up from that would be if the prosecution disagreed with that decision, or for that matter, if the defense disagreed with that decision, they could ask the Supreme Court to review it. There's a separate movement to base bail on factors other than just the offense and really not to set bail at all, but rather to consider whether the judge should make a decision at the beginning of a case if this person should be in or out based on a multitude of factors and individualized factors other than just limiting to the... In an, in an ideal uh, situation, Jeff, what would your, how would you handle it? I find it troubling to get rid of bail in its entirety. I think people should have the ability to make bail if they can. I don't like the idea of an on-off switch where the judge says in or out. They do that in juvenile court. little different in juvenile court. They look at a much broader picture on how the young person is doing. And the whole goal of the court is to rehabilitate the person not to punish or not for other purposes such as uh, protecting society by itself. That may be a factor, but not by itself. In adult court where it's different, they're more geared towards 
general deterrence, trying to send a signal that we shouldn't be doing such things. I think when it comes to bail, I think it should be very particularized. I think they should look at the individual, what kind of a danger they pose, not just this offense, but what they're contributing, uh, how stable they are, whether they're going to make it to court. Uh, there, there's many factors that they should be looking at as an individualized basis that they're not looking at now. But ultimately, I think once that's all done, I don't think that th uh, they should be denied bail in most cases. And e even people that aren't necessarily people of means, they should be able to make bail. If they have enough of a stake in the game, they're going to make their court appearances. If they have enough of a stake in the game, they're presumed not to be going out and committing more crimes while on bail, knowing they'll face enhanced penalties and end up back in custody. In those cases where those factors won't hold, there are abilities for the courts to set bail higher or ultimately deny bail. For our listeners out there, uh, and I know you predominantly deal in the uh, San Mateo County court system here, how many of the people that you think that are currently uh, incarcerated just can't make bail? Of those that have not been yet sentenced, of those that have not been adjudicated, um, I would be amazed if any of them chose to be in jail when they had the ability to make bail. And, and I guess I was more earmarking what percentage um, of the people that in and currently in uh, San Mateo County Jail, uh, for whatever type of offense, can't make bail. Is that 15 percent, 20 percent? I think it varies a lot. Um, on a given day, you'll have a calendar of 60, 75 people being arraigned and an equal number of people being arraigned that are out of custody. Um, people that are in can always get out, but I would say probably upwards of 40-50% are probably in custody. Uh, obviously the more serious when you start getting to the, uh, the felony courts and superior court, there'll be a much smaller number of people that are out than people that are in, rather people that are in, when you get into misdemeanors. Uh, probably 80% of Murat. Okay, so it's and, and more a strong and, and felony case. Correct yeah. one thing. I don't practice just in San Mateo County. Um, I have a fair number of cases presently in Santa Clara. Um, I do have cases occasionally in Alameda and, and in San Francisco. I don't see the numbers being as quite as tilted in Alameda and San Francisco as they are in San Mateo and Santa Clara. Can you can you elaborate a little bit more? How is the how does the bail situation work a little bit differently in San Mateo County than Santa Clara County? Every county, the judges of the county meet and decide a bail schedule, and every county has certain offenses that really offend for whatever reason. Either their numerosity, they're coming up a lot. Um, Therefore, they have individualized bail schedules that may be higher in some areas and lower in others. They have punishment for certain offenses that may be higher for certain offenses and lower in others relative to the county network. So for our listeners, what you're kind of indicating, it's not universal in San Mateo County or Santa Clara County, maybe the sentencing or the type of bail that would be uh, given to a particular uh, crime? No, it's not universal. There are... Some patterns that are going to be the same, and for most crimes, it's not going to vary that much. But, for example, in San Francisco, you could commit a misdemeanor offense, and almost any misdemeanor, you're given a chance at diversion. Almost any. That same person walks a few hundred feet and crosses the line to go into Daly City. Now they're being prosecuted in San Mateo County. And they don't have a pre-plea diversion program in San Mateo County. Except for drug offenses, they were put back on the books first of the year uh, by the state. But San Mateo County doesn't have a pre-plea diversion program. They do have deferred entry uh, with a very limited number of offenses. But somebody on one side of that county line or the other could face radically different consequences. In Santa Clara County, a juvenile that gets arrested for many, many felony offenses, if they're nonviolent felony offenses, has a chance at deferred entry of judgment, where you enter a plea, it's set aside for a year, you come back at the end of the year if you've done well, if you've kept even at school. Not everybody's an A student, but you're making the effort, you're not getting detentions or suspensions, you're really 
maintaining and you're not not doing the things that we wouldn't want you to be doing, uh, you're going to have a very likely chance that that case is going to be dismissed. San Mateo County has a much more limited availability of deferred entry of judgment. Um, it, it just varies by county where leniency, where leniency fits in. Where Does it have to do with any resources that are available for it, or is it just the way San Francisco approaches things, or is it just the way Santa Clara... Um, and I'm going to give you a two-part. In an ideal situation, do you think this should or become more universal? Or do you think it's just the draw of the luck wherever the crime is committed, you've got to uh, suffer the uh, consequences of the way the court system works? The first part of your question was whether it's a question of resources. And it's not a question of whether one county has resources and another does not, but rather where they allocate those resources. Some place a higher value in trying to steer young people towards a straight and narrow or place a higher value in sending out a signal that we're not going to let this happen to us. Um, in San Mateo, for example, our demographics are somewhat different, but you look to our urban neighbors and see certain types of crimes persist in those counties which might, might persist here if we were to take the lid off the pot, if so to speak. And that's the thought process. Can you give us an example of that? We have gang activity in this county. and we've, we're, I'm not going to say we haven't had gang-related murders in this county. We do. I'm not going to say we don't have some pretty serious offenses. But the number of drive-by shootings and the like that you would have out of San Jose or out of San Francisco or out of Oakland are significantly more than you would have out of suburban areas and most of this county would be considered suburban, even though we're getting to be quite dense. Uh, we are still suburbs. And there are certain things that we would like to keep a lid on that we don't want some of these things to encroach in our area. So if I'm not mistaken, I think San Mateo County did a, uh, uh, a report on gang activity not too long ago, and it's my understanding that they've done an extremely good job on suppressing the gang activity. I think they have, at the risk of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, because sometimes people that may know somebody in a gang, particularly in juvenile cases, um, kids in particular are quick to be labeled as gang associates when what they've meant to say is they know someone from school that's a gang member that's not necessarily someone they hang out with every day, but they're considered associates because of that. I think we may cast the net a little broader than we would in an ideal situation, but I also see that we've done a really good job at keeping down the level of gang activity and the level of, of gang violence. We've had certain gangs that we have, as a county, targeted in which the authorities have really curtailed their activities, if not put them out. Well, you know, there's there's something that's been in the news quite a bit, um, and uh, it's causing a lot of uh, uh, controversy now, and they're trying to see how they can approach it. And that's called the smash-and-grab crime, where someone can uh, go ahead and break into your car and steal your computer or steal your cell phone or your briefcase and basically just be given a ticket. Um, and... I was listening to some talk shows on it, and, and, and I want to really get some enlightening from you. They said, well, they couldn't prove that the door was locked or the door was unlocked. How do we deal with the smash and grab? I think um, they, they're, they're saying San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken, well, uh, they had some 60,000, 80,000 cases of smash and grab. And how is San Mateo County dealing with it? Um, how can we deal with it in the future? Because they want to just give a citation for this type of crime, and that's what we're doing. Is it a good idea? Actually, I think that's misleading as far as the idea that we've just given out citations. I've had people in Superior Court facing felonies for the smash-and-grab auto burglary. The problems in San Francisco are overwhelming in terms of the car break-ins. I don't drive into San Francisco with anything in my car, period. That being said, the law treats a burglary differently in that if it's a burglary of a store, of a house, it talks about 
entering with the intent to commit a theft. Even if there is no theft, it's the entry and what you have in mind on entry. In an automobile, it looks at it somewhat differently. There has to be proof that the car was locked. And quite simply, there's legislation pending which would change that. You could infer the car was locked if, in fact, somebody had to break in to get in. They wouldn't do that if the car weren't locked. So if the car, if they, if they broke through a window to open the door, it could be presumed that the car was locked. Now, some courts have already treated it that way, but there's legislation pending to create that presumption. That would take care of some of the problem. The idea that just because it's a petty theft, they're going to get a ticket, true to a, to a part that um, you don't have the recidivism in theft, that the anti-recidivism statutes that we used to have, um, it requires uh, coming back more often. And now, after Proposition 47, um, a mere theft doesn't necessarily elevate to a felony just because there's priors. But with the value being higher, as you described, somebody taking a laptop or the like, if you can show that the theft exceeded $950, there's jurisdiction to still prosecute it as a felony. Now, I was listening to uh, some talk about this, and they were saying that the car rentals seem to be a, a big victim primarily because uh, the people that rented the car probably won't come back and to prosecute or say about the crime. Have you, have you heard that rental cars were targeted a little bit more, more often than just the... Uh, I have, I have for two reasons. One is that if the people don't come back to testify, how do you show the car was locked? Now, that's what the legislation seeks to change. But there's still a problem in the sense that if the people don't return to testify, how do you show the person didn't have permission to enter? Um, have anybody not known somebody who climbed in a window or maybe even inadvertently broke a window because they locked themselves out of their house or left their keys inside or something. Um, with that in mind, you need somebody to say they didn't have permission to enter at some level. But there are ways to deal with that as well. Uh, slight changes in legislation could deal with that. I want to let the listeners know that I did. I, uh, I had an opportunity to park my car in a, at the fish market one time and there was a smash and grab. Um, but my car had a computer bag, and in the computer bag was no computer, uh, but was my checkbook. So uh, it happens anywhere. So to the listeners out there, the smash and grab, we don't want it to think it's just isolated with one area. It could be a, a nice area. I know my sister was visiting, and she had a car rental in Burlingame, and along behold, a smash and grab, and they took the computer. Yeah, and it, the simple biggest thing you can do to protect yourselves from a smash and grab or any other automobile burglary is simply don't leave things in the car and certainly don't leave them visibly in the car. If you can put them in the trunk, if you can put them out of view, if you can put them on the floor and they don't stand out, you have a much smaller chance of a break-in than if you have something sitting on the seat that somebody thinks they want. People aren't going to break into random cars and start rummaging through cars to see if there's something inside that they want. If they see a car that has stuff out in the open, they're going to break into that car rather than the car parked nearby that has nothing visible that they want to leave, that they want to look in and see what's there. Jeff, you had an opportunity to be a judge pro tem. Can you tell us what year you did? And did you look at things differently when you were sitting on the bench? All of a sudden you're in the robe and, and you're sitting there in, in front of... Uh, uh, the defendants um, or the plaintiffs or whatever. How did you feel and when did you do that? Actually, I still do. Working as a judge pro tem is a volunteer activity. You are a judge for the day or you're acting as a commissioner for the day. I do it myself sitting occasionally in small claims court, which is civil in nature. That's often a dispute between neighbors, between people who have done business with one another. That is, in many ways, the people's court. The other area where I sit as a judge pro tem is in traffic, both arraignments and doing traffic trials. Very different. One of the things you learn, the people in front of you presenting the cases are not attorneys, they're not trained in the law most of the time. You're usually dealing with individuals who are there to air their grievances, but they're also emotionally involved and not necessarily trained. And as a trained attorney, it's a reminder to me that when I present a case in front of a judge or a jury, those individuals don't walk into that courtroom knowing all about my case as I do. 
So I need to break it down and take them through the steps that got us to that point and not just the story, that piece of the story that's there in front of them. I need to let them know what the case is about. And the other thing it teaches me, frankly, and I don't mean any disrespect to the people that have appeared in front of me in the past or maybe those that will in the future, but I learn what it looks like when somebody forgets to make that sharp left-hand turn having rounded second base. You end up way out in the confines of deep left field. And invariably, not every calendar, but on some calendars, you see people that really stray into some interesting areas. And on the one hand, you want them to present their case. You don't want this eliminate what they can, or limit what they can tell you. On the other hand, you try to keep them focused on what it is they're trying to tell you so that they can give you what they need to tell you. And in turn, I can hear what I need to know to make my decision. So do, do you, um, so, so what you're telling us is, Jeff, that it's given you an opportunity to be a better listener and trying to hear the complete story um, and because the plaintiff or the defendant may not have as much information as you have or may not understand the charges that are before them. And that I can flip to where it makes me more effective at presenting my case later in front of somebody who may know a lot about how to make their decisions, but they're not going to know what I know about the case. And I'm going to basically know how to present it to them in a way in what they need to hear. Well, that goes into my next uh, uh, interest. Uh, do you uh, feel that judges um, should have discretion in sentencing? Or do you think there's a certain prescribed sentence for a particular type of crime? We all know that there are recommended stuff. So I, I kind of want to hear as you sat on the bench and, and, and as you're a defense attorney, where do you feel the, the, the decision process should be in sentencing? There's always a range available to a judge. There are cases where the range is in different areas where there may be no probation allowed or there may be a minimum. At the other end, in a felony case, typically there's a triad of three possible sentences. The judge can often suspend the imposition of a sentence and put the person on probation. Probation would include time in county jail or various terms of probation. And, it, and if they violate that, they could get further probation or ultimately get one of those terms either in county jail or state prison. For a misdemeanor, it's up to a year or six months, depending on the misdemeanor, typically. They always have a range. It always troubles me when you see a limit placed on what the judge can do within those within those prescribed areas. Um, the judge has a lot more information with regard to the particular case, and I'm not a big fan of one-size-fits-all. Occasionally, a case will come along where people are offended because what they hear of the conduct, having never seen the trial, not knowing all of the facts, but what they hear of the conduct is offensive. And oftentimes it should be offensive. But to say we can never have a sentence as lenient when they really don't have first-hand knowledge of the factors in front of the court is disturbing. Across the country, um, uh, of course, we hear in the news once in a while um, on how a judge is pretty creative in their sentencing. Um, whether uh, I'm just going to give an example, there was a uh, somebody was convicted of a DUI, and uh, the judge made that person publicly wear a sign that I, uh, apologizing or saying I was a drunk or I won't drink. What do you think of the creative sentencing that we're hearing? across the country. I know we, we, that's random. Uh, 90, probably 99% of the judges follow the discretion of the sentencing based on the crime. I think the days where you could put someone in the stocks and so that people can walk by and see them are or should be long behind us. Uh, I think we've moved on as a society. I think the idea of the case you just you mentioned, uh, there's a similar theft case where somebody walks around with a sandwich board in public to humiliate them. I think public humiliation is really not appropriate in this day and age. We have people from all different cultures. We have people from all different types of values. Uh, we need to find a way to reach people. The 
general deterrence is met by the idea that you could face whatever the punishment is that the law allows. Specific deterrence is a much more important model, saying what the effect of a sentence would be on this person. Publicly humiliating them is really not necessary. It doesn't, it doesn't rehabilitate anybody. It's really an inappropriate model. I'm not big on that level of creativity. <clears throat> when you talk about making somebody attend a certain type of classes, certain types of training, talk to others about their experience, um, when you help somebody turn your, their life around but you make a condition of their probation that they help others, that is entirely appropriate. Giving them time in jail is a very good learning experience compared to wearing a sandwich board sign. Simply making somebody internalize anger over a long period of time doesn't help bring down the crime rate. Is there any other way that you think that we could streamline uh, sentencing a little bit better or... That, uh, uh, and and when I when I when I talk about that, uh, a crime in San Mateo County um, will probably have a longer sentence than maybe in San Francisco or maybe in Santa Clara. Um, just an observation: is that a poor observation or conclusion to come up with that the sentencing is a little bit tougher here in San Mateo County? In general, I think it's a fair observation. I don't think it's true across the board. I think there are areas where in San Mateo County they're not going to be as harsh as in Santa Clara County. There's some areas that they're surprisingly harsher in San Francisco County. I think San Francisco having the electorate that it does is going to be more swayed by those offenses that are presently newsworthy and disfavored, which are not often the most serious of offenses, but they can have drastic consequences for people. Driving of the influence, for example, on a first offense might not be treated as the most serious offense out there. It's given a harsher sentence in San Francisco than it is in San Mateo. And yet, the consequences can be horrific. Even to a first-time driver, first-time DUI driver could end up killing people. So I don't want to minimize how serious it is, but as a garden variety offense, it's not that serious as the conduct, it's something that we've all come close. Thanks to Lyft and Uber and the ilk, maybe not. A, maybe we're not coming as close as we once did, but the consequences of somebody who crosses that line can be can be pretty significant, even without their blood alcohol level being very high. Um, for our listeners, um, do you have an approximate idea on? Uh how many people might be incarcerated at one time for DUI in, in, in San Mateo County? Is that the population? Is that about a 50% of the population, 60%? Or And I know I'm not holding you to it. I'm just wanting, in your professional opinion. You mean how? what percentage of the population may have been at one time or another affected mm-hmm. by DUI? I have no idea whatsoever. That would be a really difficult number to gather. But I can tell you that with three quarters of a million people in San Mateo County, I can't begin to imagine that even 10% of the population has had a DUI. Wow. Wow, that's great. Um, you know, this kind of leads me into another thing. Um, and that this happened uh, in 2016 in, in, in um, Judge Persky's uh, case on Brock Turner, the uh, swimmer from Stanford. Um, he was given um, initially... Um, a six-month sentence uh, where he served some time, and I think he served half of that time, um, and was given a strict five-year probation period. Um, what's your opinion? I know the, the legal the legal scholars that are seem to argue there's a petition that uh, supposedly has gained momentum, meaning that I think it's almost qualified, uh, and that happened in January 23rd, that, that they have pre-qualification. But one of the one of the arguments, um, there's two arguments here that that I see, and I'm, I'm not an attorney. But the one argument is uh, that the crime did not fit the punishment. Uh, two that that actually the recall of the judge shouldn't possibly take place because he's he's in, uh, the state should be monitoring it, and the people shouldn't be able to recall. 
It's been some 87 years since the state of California, I think it was in 1913, that a Judge Wheeler um, with a group of women's organizations that actually had a Judge Wheeler um, was um, removed from the bench. Do you have any comments on that? I do. I'm far from an expert on the case, but um, I can tell you some basic factors that I think most people know. First is that that sentence was not out of line uh, compared to what most people were receiving at that time. It was it was not unusual in my practice to watch to see similar cases where somebody would get probation with a year. Anytime somebody gets a probationary sentence and they get a gets probation and county jail sentence, they're going to serve half of that time. So more typically they would get a year or thereabouts. It wasn't that off the scale. The laws changed. A similar circumstance, the person would have been denied probation. Somebody similarly charged to Brock Turner would have been denied probation. But at the time, the law was that they were eligible for probation. The sentence wasn't that far afield. But one thing that most people don't know about it is that the New York Times at one point had made the probation report available. The probation report, as a matter of law, is sealed 60 days after the sentence. So at one point it was publicly available, and they actually placed it on the web. I've read that probation report. In the probation report, the victim told the probation department that she did not want to see Turner go to jail. She didn't think jail time was the answer. Her words, jail time is not the answer. She wanted to see him get probation. She wanted to do strict counseling. She wanted to see things change. I think the movement to uh, to go after the judge is probably ill-placed, but I think the larger impetus isn't necessarily to go after Judge Persky, although that's the form it's taking, but the larger impetus is to create some social change so that somebody who does this would face more serious punishment, but more importantly, that there's a deterrent to doing it, that you just see the number go down. Uh, I haven't met with the professor who's spearheading the campaign, but I know her by reputation. I know she's an activist. She's a very bright and accomplished professor, and she has truly been motivated to try to change some of the atmosphere on campus and the number of assaults on campus. I, I couldn't disagree with her more about going after Judge Persky, but I do understand and acknowledge the frustration in trying to bring a sense of decency to college campuses to where young women don't fear being assaulted. And I understand the frustration to see somebody come through the justice system and appear to receive somewhat of a lenient sentence. Uh, Jeff, one of the other comments on the case um, was maybe that the judge should have reclused himself because of his relationship with Stanford University. Um, and when I asked that question, Stanford has been known to maybe be a little more overprotective of their students or what type of crimes are on campus. Do you have, do you have any comment on that or is that a factor in your... There's a... I've had several cases from Stanford, <clears throat> and in my experience, there is a culture to protect Stanford. And I can't blame them for trying to protect Stanford, but sometimes people get caught up in it. I've seen a student who had a psychotic break and admitted to putting some paraformaldehyde in drinking water in a water cooler in the medical student's lab. Um, I've seen a woman who return to the same campus building over and over, but if they spent more time with her before arresting her, they would have noticed that she has, she doesn't suffer mental illness, she suffered a traumatic brain injury. So when she was returning to the same place to try to get information, she was perseverating because of a brain injury that she suffered in an accident. And you treat it somewhat differently. One case was dismissed, one case received a sentence, I will let you guess which is which of those two. Um, I've had other cases on at Stanford, but it seems that protect the institution, protect the people there, that's in the culture. 
I respect that. Having gone to a school that was somewhat under siege at one point in my career from some of the community, I understand the uh, the desire to protect, and I respect that. Jeffrey, on uh, behalf of Podcast by the Bay, we want to thank you for your valuable time and your valuable insight, and uh, it's great to have an opportunity to interview you. It's exciting for you to share your profession with us. And on behalf of Podcast by the Bay, we want to thank you. And we look forward to maybe having another podcast with you in the future. Thanks, Thank Jeff. you for having me. All right. Well, thanks to criminal defense attorney Jeff Hayden for taking us into his mini law school and really educating us about some of the laws and some of the decisions that uh, a judge would have to make. It's very enlightening and uh, it's very uh, interesting to hear. So I definitely appreciate that. truly on guitar on lead guitar and we had martin also known as shoka on the rhythm guitar on that one all right and so now we're going to get down to the thought of the episode and so today's thought of the episode we're going to talk about something that is different today than it was 20 years ago right and so one of the things that's happening into this society that is happening today is there's there's more violence. There there's there's these issues. You know there was that that Austin bombing. There's the the school shooting. So there's there's more of these these violent acts are happening today, and it just seems to be more frequent, right? And that could be various reasons. That could be just the news are overreported. We have social media. There's other things like that. But in a nutshell, it does seem like that's happening more. And so when you're looking at wondering, uh, trying to understand why is this happening? And so one of the things that's happening different today than it was 20, 30 years ago is that we have this constant information overload called the Internet. And we have access to learn how to develop these tools right to 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 learn how to to build weapons to learn how to uh get all that information you need you can buy anything on the internet you can get access to anything and the difference is when 20 years ago you didn't have access at everything at your fingertips if you wanted something you really had to dig and you had to go research and and you you could you could get things eventually but it wasn't so accessible. And the difference today is that everything is accessible on the Internet. It's instant. Everybody wants instant gratification. Everybody wants instant results. They want to get their Ph.D. in six weeks, right? Instant online universities. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, Amazon, they want to, they, they want to uh, buy it and they want to get it tomorrow, right? So there's all this instant gratification. And uh, everything is so instant now. Everything has to be now, 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 now. And so we have an access differentiation from what was going on 20 years ago. Everybody has access now where there was a lot, a lot less access. And that comes to weapons, that comes to information on how to build these weapons and, and everything else like that. So it's just fascinating to me is that is the issue, does it become... Are we 
not able to handle the access in a way that is causing some of this violence, right? Is that is that is that possible, right? Is it possible that because we have so much access, we're not even sure how to even filter through it and actually make sense of it because I, and I've heard studies about this that our brains are not actually able to handle all this information overload constant 24 hours a day feeds all this feeds feed feed and, and, and stuff like that so that's just a question I have and so that's today's thought of the day is the access that we have today causing some of the issues that we're seeing all right Thanks for joining us on this episode of Podcast by the Bay. We'll catch you on the next one. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at HighwaySoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.Liberty-RealtyInvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. All material is property and copyrighted by Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Stay tuned.